This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. This morning, we are going to shift our focus a bit. Uh, now we're going to look at the international context and uh, how other actors outside the hemisphere uh, have impinged upon the, uh, the, the uh, survivability of these three authoritarian states. Uh, we're going to ask ourselves, what are the instruments that these external authoritarians have been using? Uh, most importantly, how effective have they been? Do they really make a critical difference or not? If those external props were suddenly to disappear, would these regimes suddenly implode or not? Uh, difficult questions, try to unravel causalities, uh, but we'll do our best there. Uh, and then finally, we want to take a look at, are these three, are these external regimes working together in concert or are there possible contradictions among themselves? To help us explore these topics, we have uh, three really fantastic panelists, uh, all good friends of mine. Uh, John Polga Hesemovich is with the uh, U.S. Naval Academy. Uh, their bios are, are on the uh, Institute of the Americas website, so I'll just hit the high points. Uh, but uh, John has a PhD in political science from the University of, of Pittsburgh. Uh, he is a well-published expert on Venezuelan military affairs in particular and Venezuela-Cuban relations. Also very pleased to have with us uh, Ivan Ellis uh, with the U.S. Army War College. Uh, Ivan is a very well-published uh, with encyclopedic knowledge of these very these issues uh, and uh, he particularly uh, is knowledgeable about uh, Chinese activities uh, throughout the Western Hemisphere. Uh, then uh, finally, uh, Cindy Arnson, uh, who until just a few days ago was the long-term uh, director of the Latin American program at the Wilson Center, uh, but she will, um, uh, she will remain at the Wilson Center as a distinguished fellow. Cindy is also widely published on Central America, on the role of the U.S. Congress, on peacekeeping in Latin America, and most recently was the editor of this excellent tome, Venezuela's Authoritarian Allies, The Ties That Bind, which includes an article uh, by, by John as well. Uh, so with that introduction, John, uh, the floor is yours. Speakers will go on for 12 to uh, 15 minutes. Uh, and then after the three, uh, we'll open it up to a, to a discussion among the panelists and a Q&A. So thank you all. Terrific. Thank you very much, uh, Richard, for, for that lovely introduction. I'm honored to be here with you this morning at this event and to share in such August company just a few weeks before the summit of the, the Americas. As we enter a new stage and new age of great power competition, I think some patterns from the previous era of global bipolarity are, are reemerging under new guises. One of these is certainly authoritarian state collaboration or cooperation, whereby autocrats in one place abet authoritarian persistence in other places. In fact, I think one of the keys to the survival of dictatorships after the third wave of democratization has been partnerships with and reliance upon other dictatorships. What I'm going to talk to you about for the next couple of minutes is first, first and foremost, what authoritarian collaboration looks like today in the Americas. Secondly, what foreign policy tools autocrats have employed to support authoritarianism in other places. Third, the extent to which uh, international support for authoritarian regimes has made a crucial difference in Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. 
And fourth, whether these powers are, are working together and how the U.S., and even though this is a focus of, of the next panel today, how uh, the U.S. and other states might exploit uh, how, how those authoritarian powers are working together. I'd like to begin with what uh, authoritarian collaboration looks like in the Americas. We have you know, three, three authoritarian states, very clearly authoritarian states, uh, that are the focus of today's discussion, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. And they have undoubtedly survived and at times thrived from the economic largesse of other authoritarian states and benefited from strategic contributions from these, these same countries in the domains, well, military, diplomatic, and intelligence spheres. We, we know that these allies range from uh, extra hemispheric powers like China and Russia, as well as Iran, Turkey, and even the United Arab Emirates, to strategic partnerships among each other in the hemisphere. In fact, I think it's very helpful to differentiate among uh, types of authoritarian cooperation right now in Latin America. On one hand, we have interhemispheric, and on the other, extra hemispheric, right? In addition to the actors involved in these two, two types of, um, uh, of collaboration, they can be distinguished. They're distinguished by whether that cooperation is motivated by uh, interests or ideology. All right. So interhemispheric uh, cooperation or collaboration initially was more motivated and united by ideology than interests. Right. Specifically, we know that Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua share economic, cultural, and diplomatic ties as like-minded Bolivarian states, right? something that differentiates them not only from other possibly hybrid regimes in the Caribbean basin that may be teetering on the, the edge of authoritarianism, but also distinguishes them from other authoritarian regimes in other parts of the world. Right? In this way, ideology also unites, you know, certainly unites Latin America's three contemporary dictatorships, the way that maybe, you know, socialist authoritarians or right of center military dictatorships in the Southern Cone supported each other during the Cold War. With that being said, in the past couple of years, Nicolás Maduro, Daniel Ortega, Miguel Díaz-Canel are all autocrats more interested in staying in office than disseminating this rival ideological model to liberal democracy, okay? And of these three, very clearly, we can understand that despite its economic, political, and humanitarian crisis, Venezuela is certainly the hegemon of these three countries, providing even today economic and diplomatic stability to both Cuba and Nicaragua. All right. On the other side, we have extra-hemispheric collaboration, which is certainly motivated more by interests than ideology. And I think making this distinction is quite important. This refers to the many ways in which China, Russia, and other smaller countries are helping to keep Latin American countries afloat, especially Venezuela. Rather than aggressively spreading a particular form of government, right, fascism or communism, Russia and China are more interested in creating global conditions under which democracy promotion is blunted and, and state sovereignty, right, in, in air quotes, is further entrenched because that helps them. They do not support authoritarianism per se. I think they, they seek to strengthen these regimes that are particularly supportive of their own rule. Right. That being said, uh, there's a study published this year, an academic study showing that uh, China's central government 
donations to Latin America during COVID were affected by the level of democracy in the host country. And it, this supports the, the argument that China uses aid to promote what we might call a, a Beijing model of autocratic development. So how specifically does this autocratic uh, cooperation work? Well, authoritarian powers, motivations to provide support for fellow autocrats and to fellow autocrats are, are self-serving rather than driven, driven by some ideological commitment to create uh, an authoritarian international, to put it one way. Authoritarian leaders care first and foremost about uh, maximizing their own survival by selectively supporting other acquiescent authoritarian regimes, um, maintaining or making inroads to strategic control and fostering their own developmental goals. Okay. So secondly, what are the instruments that these authoritarian states have, have used? Well, regardless of whether they are inter or extra hemispheric, we know that autocrats have used a full array of, of foreign policy tools to bolster the resilience of regimes in Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua, right? Among, you know, military, economic, diplomatic intelligence, I, I think the most powerful has been economic, or I will make the case that, that the economic tool has been the most important. And we can start with China. In broad terms, uh, academic studies have recently shown that export dependence on China increases leadership dur durability in authoritarian regimes. Uh, moreover, the data show that, that China's economic cooperation is associated with regime durability in party-based regimes, which is to say places that have uh, political parties and maybe have elections, even if they're not free and fair, right? In Latin America, we know that Chinese loans to Venezuela have provided critical support to Nicolás Maduro's dictatorship. Uh, they've contributed to the country's humanitarian collapse and raised broader questions about uh, the transparency of, of Chinese capital in, in the region. Chinese trade, we know, uh, with Latin America and the Caribbean has soared from 18 billion in 2002 to 450 billion in 2021, driven by uh, demand for commodities. And we know that both Cuba and Venezuela have received significant assistance from China and Chinese government during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and after November 2021, after Nicaragua uh, recognized uh, Taiwan as part of China, uh, it also has been included in the, uh, as a recipient of that uh, uh, assistance. Okay. Um, you know, economically, Russia is, is not as important, nor, nor other states. You know, Russian, Russian trading goods with Latin America is, is, is quite small, especially compared to the United States and China. Um, but, but in, you know, for China, it's been quite important. What other tools have been used? Well, technology, I'm sure that Evan today will, will speak about this. Um, I don't particularly see technology transfer or technology sharing as being as important to authoritarian survival in the Caribbean, although we do know that China has sold uh, security systems to, among other countries, Venezuela and uh, under Rafael Correa, Ecuador, right? Uh, and Chinese surveillance has been a useful tool for the Venezuelan government. I'm not sure that's critical in assuring its, uh, its survival, however. Diplomatically, we know that support from a host of authoritarian states and in international fora, from the OAS to the UN, uh, has has scuttled votes that would punish those authoritarian states, right? We we simply have to take a step back and note the countries that recognized Guangdong uh, in 2019 
which were nearly all democracies, versus those that did not, which were nearly all uh, autocracies, right? Militarily, we know that Cuba uh, has helped Venezuela revamp its, its armed forces and military intelligence service, beginning with, with agreements signed in, in May of 2008. Uh, the agreement stipulated or allowed Cuba to train soldiers in Venezuela, review and restructure parts of, of the Venezuelan military, train Venezuelan military agents in, in Havana, and change the intelligence services mission from spying on foreign rivals to surveilling its country's own soldiers, officers, and even senior commanders. Uh, and given that, that the Bolivarian Armed Force is the most important institutional actor uh, helping to, to keep Nicolas Maduro in power, this is quite significant, right? So there are lots of tools and to say that there's some monocausal explanation uh, or a singular tool keeping people in power, I think would be disingenuous, right? It's a combination of tools used in different ways strategically uh, given different contexts. I also think it's fair to say you know, that, that international support for authoritarian regimes has, has made the crucial difference, right? In Venezuela, our, our minds immediately go to Russia and China, but other smaller countries have played a vital role recently as well. International support for Maduro's authoritarian regime has been crucial in allowing it to survive its devastating period of economic decline, punishing sanctions, and internal pressures for, for change, Right. Venezuela's relations with Russia and China during the Chavez era of the 2000s and early 2010s resulted in tens of billions of dollars in loans, investment, and arms purchases, uh, a significant portion of which remains unpaid. However, as, as U.S. government efforts to crush the Venezuelan economy in 2019 and bring Maduro to the table, uh, the negotiating table, uh, accelerated, the purpose of Venezuelan foreign policy changed as well. And sanctions evasion, I think, became its central goal, right? And sanctions evasion hasn't depended as much on Russia and China as it has on other states, right? Uh, specifically, Turkey and Iran have played a, a very significant role. Venezuela's strong anti-U.S. posture has resonated with those two places, which are also being sanctioned by the U.S., and both have profited handsomely from their trade with Venezuela, receiving payments in gold for products exported to the country and helping to market sanctioned oil in the case of, of Iran, right? Notably in April, 2021, Conviasa, the largest commercial airline in Venezuela, established 30 new international routes connecting the country to many of its allies in the illegal gold trade, such as Turkey and Iran, as well as the UAE. And Cuba for its part has continued to re receive shipments of Venezuelan oil, despite Venezuela's own severe fuel shortage and has provided invaluable in-kind security and intelligence support, right? Without this support, it seems much more likely that Maduro would no longer be president. For Cuba's case, we know that the Cuban regime is probably has been in a less precarious position in recent years than Venezuela. Uh, nonetheless, Venezuelan oil shipments beginning in 2000 were instrumental in helping Cuba resist the economic hardship and diminishing international relevance following the collapse of the Soviet Union and the special period of the 1990s, right? And for this reason, Havana has had a, a compelling economic and political interest in the Maduro government's survival, right? This continues in 2004 with the establishment of the Bolivarian Alliance of the Peoples of Our America, right, ALBA. 
uh, and has continued even in 2017, in 2018, uh, and 2019, as Venezuela has continued to ship oil to the island. Similarly, in Nicaragua, we know that uh, its dictatorship has been the, a prime recipient of Venezuela's largesse and illicit financial linkages, beginning with Petro Caribe in the 2000s. However, Venezuelan uh, aid to Nicaragua dr- dr- dramatically, drastically diminished, I was going to say dramatically diminished, between 2017 and 2019. But it's picked up again in 2021 after Nicaragua's sham elections. And it appears that Venezuela and Nicaragua are engaged in a mutually beneficial gold laundering scheme in which Venezuelan gold is flown to Nicaragua, processed and relabeled as Nicaraguan gold, and then exported and sold on the international markets. As evidence of this, the amount of money at stake is so large that gold surpassed beef as Nicaragua's most important export in 2021, with uh, exports forecasted to top $1 billion in 2022, right? We also know that Russia, and to a lesser degree, China, uh, have important stakes in Nicaragua. Lastly, you know, um, what is the role of these countries supporting each other, or uh, are they working in tandem or apart? I think it depends on whether they're extra or interhemisphere. Extra hemispherically, I, I do not really believe there is some autocrats international. Right? These countries are not working in concert with one another. They have different interests and they lack a unifying ideology. As I've said before, Russia and China and Saudi Arabia are more interested in creating global conditions under which democracy promotion is blunted and they can entrench sovereignty, but they're not working together to achieve this. On the other hand, interhemispherically, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba are working together in close concert with one another, driven in part by their ideology but as well by the isolationism brought on by U.S. sanctions, right? Uh, this is something that I'm sure we will get into in the Q&A and that subsequent panels will address. Uh, but authoritarian regimes, as the academic literature notes, often enter into different forms of collaboration when they feel they're facing an existential crisis, right? Um, I think... You know, the policy prescriptions are, are, are necessarily going to involve trade-offs. The question is, engage or isolate? There are no easy answers. You know, engagement and appeasement may encourage authoritarians to become more aggressive, while isolation ensures them turning away from the U.S. and other democracies and reinforces their ties to China, Russia, and each other. So I think the question becomes one of not just engagement, but what type of engagement and how best to engage. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, John. That was great. I, I love the phrase autocratic internationalism. That's a good one. I hadn't heard that before. Uh, uh, let me just jump in, though, before we go to the next speaker and, and ask you a tough question, John, uh, if, you, if you don't mind. Uh, several times you said uh, the external assistance uh, among them or, or from the outside made a crucial difference. Crucial to that, uh, I hear that as saying if that as, if, if those actions instruments were not there, uh, the regimes would be fundamentally different. They'd be fundamentally weakened. All right. Uh, what's your benchmark or metric uh, for using the phrase "crucial difference"? Specifically in the economic area, we talk about flows from China, Russia, whatever. Uh, can you uh, can you offer some uh, ratios? 
the the aid from China was what percent of total external assistance or total imports and exports or total GDP, something to put these flows in perspective. So uh, tough question. Uh, look forward to your answer. And I know that Yvonne will be addressing similar issues going forward. Sure. Um, I, I think off the top of my head, it's, it's tough to put a number on this, especially because so many of the flows in recent years have been illicit rather than licit. And so it's difficult to, to put a number on uh, what gold is being laundered out of Venezuela to, to the UAE or Turkey or, or Iran. And it's tough to put a, a number on the oil that is, uh, that is being shipped out under different, different flags out of Venezuela. Uh, it's, it's simply difficult to do, especially since the Venezuelan government for the you know, past decade or so has done very little accounting um, of, its, of its economics. Similarly, we know that, that Cuba's accounting is, is pretty uh, opaque and increasingly Nicaragua's. So we're dealing with three countries, not only that are authoritarian, but as part of their authoritarian strategy have, have you know, closed their books and certainly are not gonna be publishing uh, numbers uh, of relating to to illicit flows, uh, I know that's not a satisfying answer. Okay. Well, <laughs> it, it, well, th- thanks, thank, thanks very much. Uh, so now let's move on to uh, Ivan Ellis. Ivan, uh, the floor is yours. I know you have so much knowledge in these areas. Uh, your your task is to somehow compress that to twelve to fifteen minutes. <laughs> thank you for being with us, Richard. Thank you very much, and thanks to the Institute of the Americas for this opportunity to share my thoughts. Uh, I'd like to start out by making a three overarching observations uh, about the state of authoritarian uh, regimes in, in Latin America. Um, first, to be a little bit provocative about this, um, it's interesting in thinking about, um, except for Nicaragua's uh, semi-voluntary uh, allowing itself to be voted out of office in 1990, it's difficult to think of a moment um, in which uh, in Latin America, left-wing dictatorships, which have become entrenched in power have actually ceded power. You can think of many examples of right-wing dictatorships, which have, for one reason or another, ceded to political pressures and allowed themselves to be voted, often with uh, a role by by the United States. Um, But difficult to think of where an entrenched left-wing dictatorship has allowed itself to to, to voluntarily leave power. Um, Number two, um, as I think about the answers to some of these questions, as as John Polga also very well uh, put it, um, many of the answers that we find are similar to what we wrestle with in the era of the Cold War in the Soviet Union or other uh, discourses in other parts of the world about uh, dictatorships, although in a different uh, moment of time. And number three, um, as we think about the upcoming uh, Summit of the Americas, uh, and, I, and I think uh, some of the actions uh, by uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador and his proclamations um, about uh, not attending the summit and, and others, uh, now Bolivia, Honduras, Brazil, uh, possibly many of the states of CARICOM to, to not attend um, in you know a statement of, of principle over whether Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua are, are not included. Um, it's interesting that the current state of play that we have in Latin America um, is a a region whose multilateral diplomacy based on its current political orientation seems to put fraternity and this concept of mutual non-intervention over the principles of advocating for democracy, uh, even in orient in institutions like, like the OAS. Um, now, having said those, I, I want to um, begin with the, the three questions that were addressed to me. Um, number one, the idea of, of what policy tools are most effective for authoritarian regimes in bolstering their resilience. Um, and as John also rightly pointed out, um, let me um, start out with what 
external actors are doing versus what those regimes do themselves and helping each other's. And obviously externally, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, um, there are a range of different tools with varying effectiveness, um, you know, uh, providing of resources, you know, purchasing commodities, loans, uh, providing intelligence support, uh, providing uh, technical support of, of various types, of, uh, both in terms of, of projects and, and other things, providing political cover in institutions such as the United Nations, oftentimes, which basically prevents a certain uh, uh, action from being taken in uh, those areas. Um, it's certainly providing security support, as, as we've seen from the Russians, as well as the Iranians um, in, in Venezuela, um, and uh, to a certain degree, also uh, powerfully, I think, providing uh, information architecture support, as we've seen with the um, the, the Chinese, which we'll talk about. Uh, and, and of course, uh, there is the question, although I don't see it as having that much importance as it had symbolic importance, um, states like China providing support, and, and Russia certainly providing support in, in the COVID COVID domain. But it's important also to distinguish that in this unique moment of time in Latin America, um, by contrast to the Soviet Union, virtually all of that support has been provided in pursuit of the 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 own interests of the states, Russia, China, and Iran. Um, Iran has been well remunerated by, by, by gold, for example, for, for many of, of the swap deals. Um, in the case of, of Russia, again, uh, its own strategic interest in projecting threats in, into Latin America and, and, and sticking by its friends. Uh, certainly, China also has profited handsomely from the uh, the, the loans for, for oil deals and the other activities, although certainly uh, with, with problems. And certainly, all of those regimes have a quasi-ideological uh, component in that all of them facing uh, the United States and the liberal or world order as, as the reference recognize, as, as John also alluded to, that the persistence of regimes that are pushing back against the United States, such as these, um, and that don't correspond to a Washington consensus concept, the persistence of those uh, provides a strategic opening for them and strategic benefit in, in distracting the United States and limiting uh, U.S. Uh, power in its own near abroad. Now, having said this, I, I would say that um, with respect to the internal tools that those regimes use, um, you can look at its six. I mean, number one, I would say absolutely critical empirically in, in these three cases is the non-defection of the armed forces. Sometimes, obviously, that comes from loyalty, uh, but also uh, we see, especially in the case of Venezuela, um, that that comes from the penetration of those armed forces. Here, the critical role by Cuban intelligence, the DGI, uh, as well as uh, Venezuela's own uh, GDCIM, as, as John alluded to. Um, and also uh, certain uh, structural things, the decentralization, for example, that Hugo Chavez uh, very deliberately had done with his armed forces to reduce the possibility that any one part of the armed forces um, could uh, essentially launch, launch a coup. Also, certainly the corruption of armed forces, particularly in Venezuela, but in the other two, to a certain degree, um, has played a, a role, giving them a stake in the continuity of the regime based on personal liability, uh, you know, the, the Cartel de los Solas, for, for example. Um, and at the end of the day, I think one of the things that's been critical in understanding the role of, of the military has been um, the persistent domination of legal, lethal force by the military. Um, if we look at other parts of the world and the color revolutions and things like that, there's almost always a moment where the military chooses not to use lethal force. I mean, in, in Bolivia, it was a critical moment with Evo Morales, also in the contested uh, election. But in Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, we've seen that it, time after time in those challenges, the military has held together using lethal force, um, you know, 2017, 2019, um, 
and and uh, and that has been critical against uh, unarmed, however massive, protesters. Number two, control of the basis of livelihood. I think it's important to understand the way in which these regimes are, are structured. The way in which, for example, in Venezuela, already naturally uh, with the dominance of the oil sector, but during the Chavez years and continuing on, centralizing the uh, hand the the control of economic opportunities in the, the hands of the government, while allowing the rest of the economy to essentially be destroyed, leaving little independent economic basis to live on um, or, or eat if you are an opponent of the regime. We can see this through ongoing things like the distribution of, of, of clap boxes uh, to Venezuelan supporters. Um, and in that, it's particularly important in controlling the livelihood that when external um, support from from democratic actors is going away, external investors are going away, to have that critical control of the livelihood, you need to have external support. In, in that regard, the $64 billion of Chinese loans to Venezuela was critical, or for the part of, of Cuba, getting Venezuelan oil at one point, 100,000 barrels a day was was also critical. And for certainly for uh, Venezuela, um, the effect uh, that we see, uh, especially now with uh, the oil swap deals around providing first dilutant and now actual heavy oil to Venezuela's refineries, um, to really basically help Venezuela keep the country running internally as, as well as for external for externalities. Um, in, in addition to that, control of the basis of livelihood, um, one of the key things that we've seen, I think, emerge as a, as a new phenomenon, especially in Venezuela, is this idea of informally licensed corruption. In other words, it's not just having ec- economic activities that you can divvy out, as we talked about in the previous generation, but this idea that um, in Venezuela, what you have, for example, the permission of, of different uh, Zodi commanders, for, for example, um, to engage in corruption, whether at the border, um, the Cartel de los Solas, the, the effective uh, tolerance for the engagement by senior personnel in, in the narco-traffics uh, trade, um, and certainly in the mining arc, mining arc, where, you know, the FARC and, and especially the, the ELN, um, and to a certain extent still that the sindicatos and, and the prenas are, are permitted to engage in these activities in exchange for essentially their support for the regime. Uh, number three, obviously, selective repression. Um, and to that re- regard, we can talk about roundups and torture. Uh, we can talk about the DGCIM in Venezuela or, or Sabine. Um, but uh, in addition to that, um, the increasingly important role of what you would call decentralized or deniable um, repression. And you see this in Nicaragua as, as well, but uh, most notably, uh, you see this with, with the Theas in Colombia as well as or in Venezuela, as well as the Colectivos, um, taking a, a part of the central blame away from the state. Um, and of course, uh, beyond that, information control becomes very important. Um, and to that extent, uh, you know, the support that you see from, for example, um, you know, Cuban intelligence to Venezuela, but also China um, providing cyber tools, such as, for example, the way in which uh, the Chinese uh, uh, organization CEIEC helped the Venezuelan state uh, Nicolas Maduro spy on, on Juan Guaido and other things. Or, for example, the way in which uh, Huawei in, in China helped ECTESA, the uh, Cuban telecommunication agency, uh, use its uh, switching uh, controls in order to basically shut down those July 2021 protests. And there are other things like uncertainty that is is important, um, so that the people during key power struggles feel that even though they might not like the regime, um, many Maduro is, is deeply unpopular among the rest of the Bolivar bourgeoisie, but there is the sense that your best uh, game in uncertainty is to stay with the regime. Um, and beyond that, also this notion of escape valves. So the ability of, you know, 7 million uh, Venezuelans uh, who could not uh, eat 
uh, or, or or make make a living, the ability to just leave, often through Kukata, but, but but elsewhere. Um, so you know that effectively has taken pressure off of the regime. Some of those who would be uh, the 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 frustrated people who would turn against the regime for a lack of being able to provide livelihood, if they can just leave, that uh, takes some of that pressure off. Um, now, the second question that uh, was posed, I want to address, um, how important is international support? Uh, and without that, would they collapse, um, uh, these, these regimes? And although I've, I've hinted this already, I, I would say in general, I, I see this as a necessary factor in certain ways, um, and certainly a helpful factor. And I see this in three areas. Number one, as I alluded to, um, this international support, and I'm particularly talking about the, um, the uh, extra hemispheric actors uh, like, like China and, and, and particularly Russia, um, in providing political cover, especially in United Nations Security Council, essentially paralyzing that uh, multilateral option for, for dealing with, with these states. And to a lesser extent, we see the way in which both in the hemisphere, especially um, that, uh, you know, that that complicates the ability to get an OAS consensus. We worked before with, for example, um, you know, the, the, the Lima group and other things, although um, it's, it's interesting to see how the changing political context of Latin America is really giving even more political cover uh, to, to these regimes. Um, again, as we've already seen with, with the summit of the Americas and, and where I'm is right now. Um, number two, um, the foreign uh, support, uh, the external support provides, as we've alluded to, resources to survive. And again, I've already alluded to this, um, you know, uh, the key role of, of Venezuelan oil going to, going to Cuba, which continued even as Venezuela was, was sanctioned, as John noted, um, the Chinese and Russian purchases of Venezuelan oil and the key role that they played in conjunction with PDVSA as it really technologically and technically, um, you know, went into default as a, as a you know, bloated, corrupt organization, um, and keeping that oil flowing and purchasing that oil and, and structuring ways so that, especially for, for Russia um, and, and some uh, Chinese uh, smaller companies, so that even under sanctions that, that oil could be purchased often with uh, you know, ship-to-ship transfers off of Malaysia, et cetera, um, and oftentimes providing technical support as others in the West like Halliburton and Schlumberger uh, pulled out. Um, of course, uh, in, in that regard, uh, I would call attention to the Iranian oil swaps. Um, and of course, Iran's role has gone back for, for quite some time, but in the oil sector, we first really started to see this with the, uh, the Amaway refinery um, when the, the Mahan air flights uh, began to come in and bring essentially uh, you know, Chinese parts um, with Iranian expert to try to bring that refinery back online. Uh, we began to see uh, back in September of 2021, um, Iran agreeing to provide uh, essentially um, light oil dilutants so that Venezuela could get its heavy oil out and, and sell it uh, to, to other parts of the world. And of course, with this new series of, of four agreements uh, that, that Ron uh, just recently assigned and, and the four MOUs and, and two agreements um, it seems to uh, put Venezuela on track to farther expand its production capability. Um, and certainly with respect to military, um, we've got the Iranian Mojahir 6 drones, you have the, the Russian military equipment. Um, frankly, I see the Russian military equipment not playing that important of a role um, in terms of helping the Venezuelans to control their population, but actually in placating the populations. Um, um, whereas the Chinese support, like the VN-1 armored personnel carriers um, and, and things like that, I think have been more uh, critical to control. Um, certainly, there are helpful tools. Uh, Cuba giving Venezuela intelligence um, and political guidance, China providing uh, security and control equipment, uh, including things like the Carnet de la Patria. Uh, you have uh, you know, certainly the, the Chinese uh, telecom equipment provided to, to Cuba and in Venezuela. Um, but in, in my mind, the question of without support, would they survive? Um, 
I would frankly say yes, um, certainly the extra-hemispheric actors. Um, first of all, because those regimes, um, thanks in part to Chinese money, thanks in part to other support, have already become incubated. Um, in other words, their elites, as we've already talked about from our internal discussion, are in a position where they're locked in with really no better way out other than following this to the way down. Um, I would say that at critical moments, for example, Iran helping with Venezuela's oil and things like that, some of those key interventions have staved off crisis. But in general, I think at the end of the day, it's the incubation period rather than the keeping in power period in this authoritarian cycle that's critical. Um, But certainly, on the other hand, pressure from those authoritarian friends to change postures um, could play a decisive role in moving them in a different direction. And then finally, the question, uh, are different uh, external governments collaborating in their support for authoritarian regimes in in a way that's exploitable? Um, From what I've seen over over the years, I have not seen any evidence of close collaboration, for example, between Russia and China um, on Venezuela. Um, Certainly, there was at least one Russia-China summit, I I believe, in in Beijing um, on on this issue. But in general, I think what they're driven by are the shared objectives, both benefit from the persistence of these anti-U.S., you know, anti anti-democratic, anti-free market regimes for their own separate strategic reasons. Um, In many ways, China benefits from Russia doing provocative things, as we've seen from military support, um, the way that that increases destabilization without China being tainted. Russia benefits from the quantity of money that China has provided, which has been far, far, far greater than what, what China has provided. So there's mutual benefit, although there are at times tensions over issues such as who gets the military sales with the um, for, for the, most of the Russian equipment being bought by the Venezuelan army and, and later um, the Bulgarian National Guard and, and the Venezuelan Naval Infantry buying most of, of the Chinese equipment, but a little bit of attention there. Um, but again, at the end of the day, nobody, not Russia, not uh, not China, are in a hurry to help the United States solve its problems with, with regimes like this. I will say, though, and this was really highlighted by the situation with Ukraine and the ongoing uh, you know, uh, unprovoked invasion uh, by, by by Russia, is that China is, I think, worried in certain occasions of being embarrassed by bad behavior. And that oftentimes pushes them into caution, sometimes also being worried about not being touched by sanctions. And I saw this uh, in in 2020, um, leads them to at least uh, take a lower profile or hesitate in terms of of open economic engagement in ways that Russia otherwise don't. And then I guess to conclude this idea of, um, you know, does it make sense? Uh, you know, how do we work together? And I agree with what, what John said. Um, there's a, a difficult path between trying to engage these regimes and trying to engage others. Um, to me, bringing Russia and China at the table, as we saw in the Mexico City dem- democracy talks, um, probably empowered them in the role in the region in a way that strategically did not provide benefit uh, to the United States. Um, in, in many ways, the issues of oil sanctions is, is, is a tricky one. Um, you know, the difficult decision, for example, of, of taking down Rosneft trading and the collateral damage in, in, in Europe. But um, but at the end of the day, um, it is important to engage them to, to some degree and, and not do things with the, those authoritarian regimes that farther open up these very dangerous windows that we see, um, as we saw from the uh, the Yuri Borisov visit in the Russia-Venezuela military cooperation and some of the Russian threats to deploy military forces to Venezuela and Cuba. At the end of the day, it is critical not just because of democracy in in the region, but also in the way in which uh, these authoritarian regimes create openings uh, for extra-hemispheric actors to come in that present strategic threats to the United States as well. And so those are my, my remarks. I look forward to the question and answer. And Thanks so much. That was a, a tremendous amount of material packed in there. Uh, 
I did want to, if, if this is okay, uh, Ivan, just to draw attention to what I, my main takeaway, uh, you started off by talking about the durability of these regimes. And then you went on to say that, uh, I think you quoting, uh, that they would survive uh, even without uh, some of this international collaboration. Although there may have been critical moments uh, in their history when uh, perhaps they wouldn't have survived uh, without that international collaboration. And that confirms uh, one of the points that I think that was made repeatedly yesterday, which is that it's really sort of early on before these regimes are fully consolidated that, uh, that the, you know, that the international community might have more of an opportunity to turn events around. But once they are, as you put it, uh, in, inculcated elites uh, that, or, or, um, or entrenched elites, that then, of course, uh, even without some of this international collaboration, uh, they would still uh, endure. That is to say, what we've been referring to as authoritarian resistance. Uh, so is that a fair um, wrap up of, of some of your key points, Yvonne? I, I absolutely agree with you, Richard. I, and I think one of the key things and uh, um, is is also to, to focus on the internal mechanisms for regime survival and, and dynamics and understanding how the external um, actually interfaces with that. Because in, in some cases, um, you know, that can make the critical difference or, or, or not, um, you know, but it's really about the internal dynamics um, and, and just and, and how the external actors interface with that. But, but absolutely, the where we're going right now, I, I think is, you know, the risk is, uh, in Venezuela, for example, chaos or, or, or meltdown of you know, fractionalization of the criminal economies in the interior of Venezuela, um, you know, more than a transition towards towards democracy. But uh, I yeah, think right I, now we're I, beyond Russia and China. Thank you. I think the idea, the, the interface between the external and the internal is, is a point that I'm always making to my students. And of course, it's very hard to sort of unravel those, but it, it's, it's critical to understand that interaction. So now I will hand the floor over to the uh, Cindy, I wanted you to see that I've been displaying your, your book here. Uh, and so now the floor is in the hands of, uh, the very capable hands of my, my dear friend, Cindy Arnson. Just wanted to uh, thank Richard for the kind introduction. Also thank the Institute of the Americas um, for this invitation to join you. I feel that I really have very little to add to the comprehensive presentations that were made by John and, and Evan. And uh, I think, Richard for highlighting the publication on Venezuela's authoritarian allies, which has, uh, which is a comprehensive look at Venezuela's relationships with Russia, China, Cuba, Turkey, um, and India, did I leave, and Iran. Um, so it looks at the variety of, of interests. John and Richard were both contributors. Um, and so I feel like I've learned a lot from, from there. Uh, essays in in that uh, in that publication, but let me just run through um, some of the major points and and perhaps uh, summarize. I think some of the ways that uh, people have been talking about this issue. Um, there are, I think, four principal avenues through which external powers give support to authoritarian regimes. One, obviously, economic. Um, in the case of uh, Cuba, for many years under the Soviet Union. Um, uh, received massive amounts of economic assistance. In the contemporary era, um, China has been um, a lifeline for Venezuela at first, lending it tremendous amounts of money, um, most of it being repaid in shipments of Venezuelan oil, but also recently um, Venezuela has been receiving cash in exchange for those exports. 
Um, you see it in the case of Iran. Evan has pointed out to the collaboration of Iran in providing diluents um, and also heavy oil to keep uh, the, the Venezuelan oil industry functioning at a fairly low level. You see it in Venezuela in the case of Turkey, um, which has been a, a key way that uh, Venezuela has been able to um, market gold, most of it mined illegally um, by small miners in southern, um, in southern Venezuela, um, but also in, in areas controlled by Colombian guerrillas, the ELN, um, with uh, the collaboration of members of the Venezuelan military. Um, there's also obviously military support. Um, we saw this recently um, in, in the cases of, of um, Venezuela, also in Nicaragua, the provision of significant amounts of arms from Russia to those two countries, um, both weapons, but um, are, you know, uh, machine guns, that kind of thing. Um, but also in the case of Venezuela, strategic bombers and advisors to fly those bombers and maintain them, um, which were deployed at very strategic moments when the Trump administration, for example, was um, using the language of keeping all options on the table to pose uh, the uh, threat or keep Venezuela off balance in terms of the possibility of a military, a U.S. military intervention. And that um, led to the visit of these um, uh, strategic bombers. Um, there's intelligence support. Um, again, this has been most crucial um, the, or the most prominent example that I can cite is the way that the Cuban intelligence forces and military have provided support to the Venezuelan armed forces and intelligence service um, to especially spy on the military and uh, root out any sources of dissent from within the armed forces. And it's notable that among the number of political prisoners in Venezuela, some 300 or so, it's kind of a revolving door, so it's hard to keep tap to keep on top of the exact number, but a significant portion, at least a third, if not more, are military officers. So Cuba um, has provided that, that, uh, that kind of, of training. Um, there's a lot made in the United States about the number of Cuban advisors who are actually um, in Venezuela. And I think the numbers are not so, are not as, as important um, as the kinds of support that, that Cuba has given um, to the Venezuelan intelligence and military forces. And then a fourth area, of course, is technology. And those examples have already been cited, but I'll, um, I'll, I'll just repeat them, especially uh, the export of Chinese surveillance equipment um, to, um, to Venezuela um, and undoubtedly to other countries to spy on people, to um, uh, provide the kinds of um, infrastructure and, and software that uh, allow the Venezuelan government to issue the Carne de la Patria, the, the um, homeland card with which Venezuelan civilians um, are able to access benefits from the state, including food baskets. Now, does this ensure the survival of regimes? Um, I think the key determinants um, are still internal. And those issues have been raised in, in the earlier presentations, the coherence um, of the armed forces, the police uh, and the military um, is critical to maintaining 
the, um, the to, to maintaining regime survival. And as a way of building allegiance, there's not only the rooting out of people who might be dissidents, but there is the distribution um, of economic benefits and control over strategic sectors of the economy. Um, in the, the most prominent case that I know of in, in Venezuela, control um, of food distribution, control of mining, control of ports, um, and control at various times of PDVSA, the oil um, the oil company, the state-owned oil company. There are also opportunities to profit from illegal economies with complete impunity, be they narco-trafficking or um, the extraction and export of gold. Um, a less critical, but I still think nonetheless significant, is unity within um, the movement um, or the political movement that supports regimes, um, and this would include the civil service. Um, their role in supporting the government or in um, in breaking with the government, not just as individuals, but more en masse and the way that those kinds of breaks can influence um, or influence internally the dynamics um, within the public security forces. There is a question about what policy instruments are available to the international community to address the consolidation of authoritarianism. And I would agree with, with whatever was said yesterday that the easiest way or the best time to influence is early on. Um, um, there are divergent interests between the governments that, um, that are supporting various authoritarian regimes. They are not in coordination. Uh, China, Russia have different motives for China. It was primarily um, economic for Iran. It's ideological for Russia. It has been um, a kind of tit for tat way to interfere in the Western hemisphere, the U.S. sphere of influence in the same way that, that Putin has felt that the West has interfered um, in its so-called near abroad. And we're seeing that played out in the tragic scenarios now in um, um, in Ukraine. Um, the, the policy instruments that the U.S. has, obviously diplomatic um, isolation, condemnation in various UN or, or OAS uh, bodies, um, but the most, the tool that's deployed, I think most often, um, are sanctions, are various forms of economic sanctions, as well as individual sanctions. Um, and the question is, you know, are those effective? And I think that it's very easy to um, dismiss the utility or, or uh, question the utility of sanctions um, because regimes simply do not collapse because uh, the U.S. is trying to make the economy um, and, and the regime cry uncle. Um, there is an important message of condemnation um, to stand by and do nothing as the Nicaraguan government was jailing all of its opponents in advance of the November 21 presidential elections would have sent a terrible signal to Nicaraguan society, uh, to democratic actors around the region that the United States simply doesn't care. Um, I think individual sanctions um, are more appropriate than broad-based economic sanctions, which tend to uh, impact most um, uh, profoundly ordinary citizens um, from job loss to um, you know, lack of access to basic, um, to basic needs. Um, they also have the effect of creating what uh, James Bosworth in this 
volume on Venezuela calls the axis of the sanctioned. Um, Iran was involved with Venezuela during the time of Hugo Chavez, a way of uh, showing that it was not isolated in the world, um, but the kind of economic and, and um, uh, ideological uh, tightening that has occurred under Maduro is in response to U.S. sanctions against both countries. And so there is a way that um, sanctioned countries tend to unify and, um, and support one another. Um, and I'll end, and I think Richard is probably in the best uh, position to address this issue about whether there are divergent interests. And I think he has pointed out in his essay on um, Cuba in the Venezuela volume is that historically Cuba and Venezuela have been competitors uh, for influence and, and um, dominance, if you will, in the Caribbean basin. And the divergences between these two regimes are not things that the United States um, has exploited in any kind of meaningful way. Um, it's questionable whether it would still be possible to exploit that, uh, that divergence. Um, but nonetheless, you know, um, there are possibilities if they are identified at the correct time. So I'll end there. Thank you again. Thanks, Cindy. That, that was really terrific. Uh, again, in trying to sort of disentangle the external and the internal, uh, you, you chose to emphasize that the key determinants are internal, although as we uh, recognize, there's this interaction between the external and the internal. But still, it's important to try to unravel that distinction for the following policy implication, namely that if one really thinks that these regimes are completely dependent upon external props, and that if somehow those external props were removed, the regimes would suddenly become very vulnerable and even, either collapse or be willing to enter into serious negotiations with their opposition. Uh, if, we, if we felt that, that would be a very important uh, implication for policy. If, on the other hand, these regimes uh, do display significant authoritarian resilience, if you will, uh, that they've used aid over the years, but to strengthen their internal uh, control capabilities, uh, then that gives us a different analysis with regard to the vulnerability uh, of such regimes and the extent to which sanctions could bring them to, to heal. Now, we may want to use sanctions, as you're pointing out, Cindy, for signaling purposes of virtue, let's say, uh, but that shouldn't lead us to think that, that those sanctions will bring about changes internally, necessarily. Uh, within countries, which is a different goal. Okay, uh, the the uh, uh, if either of you have comments on each other's uh, uh, presentations, uh, do we have any? Uh, John, Yvonne, Cindy, do you want to comment a bit on what each of you have said? Um, if not, um, let me underscore a bit uh, and take us to the uh, Cindy's last point when uh, she talked about the possibility of, and uh, Jorge Castaneda raised this issue uh, in his presentation yesterday, the Venezuelan-Cuban uh, relationship. Uh, historically, actually, they were, of course, competitors for influence in, in the very small pond of the Caribbean basin. Um, one might imagine that uh, if in fact we believe that uh, the Venezuelan government is very dependent upon uh, Cuban security and intelligence assistance, that one might think would give the Cubans significant uh, leverage uh, in Venezuela. Uh, 
is there, um, if we want to try to pursue negotiations of some sort in Venezuela, uh, is there an opportunity to uh, enlist Cuba uh, as a constructive uh, partner in such a negotiation? Or is this just uh, uh, outside of the realm of realism? Uh, uh, Ivan or John, would you care to comment? It's a great question, Richard. Um, so first of all, I think uh, Cuba is very good, as you well know, uh, of doing what is in Cuba's interest. And so, you know, time and time again, I mean, as, as occurred on, under the Obama administration, um, if we approach Cuba, Cuba will say, OK, um, you know, what what can we get out of this for us, Cuba, without necessarily uh, undermining our strategic position, which has in part to do with its alliance? I mean, Cuba has strategically very little to gain by publicly uh, abandoning a you know quasi-socialist ally. And so I think that would be very tricky. But I think that the key thing that your question points out is differentiating between um, between things that um, enable and, and things that are, are necessary. In other words, you know, you think, for example, of, of the Cuban DGI, um, and if you just took that support away today, you know, is this something that's so fundamental it would just it would cause the Venezuelan regime to collapse? I mean, my my sense is that is that that has become a, a it's not something that Venezuela depends on so much as it is is a thing that now there um, creates an impediment to the the you know the, the generation of military coups and things like that. But there are a lot of other things in motion that are also behind that calculus. So in many ways, it's part of the glue that holds things together. But if you say if you take away that piece, that doesn't necessarily mean it's it's a a fungible negotiable commodity that we can go to Havana to to talk about. Great, thank you. Very interesting. Yes, uh, Cindy, please. Sure. I think we need to remember that Cuba played a very important and positive role in the peace negotiations in Colombia. Uh, the talks actually went forward in Havana, and the Obama administration, I think, has acknowledged that that Cuba played um, a, a helpful role. So the question, and, and I would leave this, Richard, perhaps to you, w- with much greater expertise on the internal dynamics, you know, in Cuba, as to whether there um, are things that the Cuban regime wants that would um, inspire it to play a constructive role. And I think that the, uh, this, the idea that Cuba somehow is providing the intelligence support um, or the solidarity with Venezuela because Venezuela has given it oil is completely wrong. I mean, there's no doubt that, that the, the Cuban government values the subsidies um, that it has received over the years, now much reduced, but still ongoing. Um, but the principle, I mean, it's not a uh, mercantile kind of exchange. I mean, I think the ideological connection is extremely important. Um, and that said, you know, is there a way that Cuba could be induced to play a helpful role um, in bringing about a negotiation? Um, I'm not sure that that would happen until there are reasons that the Venezuelan government itself feels motivated to uh, to engage in some kind of dialogue or negotiations. There was a sense that that might have been the case um, some months ago when the Norway talks, the Norway mediated talks began in in Mexico. That there were divisions within the Chavista movement. Um, that there were many people within the regime who realized that economic uh, recovery was never going to take place 
until um, sanctions uh, were lifted. And now the, the Venezuelan economy has started to recuperate, you know, in tiny little ways. Dollarization is, is far advanced for a lot of, of internal as well as external transactions. Um, the price of oil is obviously a great boon to uh, what had been a, a moribund um, industry. Now, again, these are in, you know improvements at the margin when you think that just during the years that, that Maduro has been in power, the economy has contracted by 80%. I mean, it's really quite shocking. So, you know, when you go from a million percent inflation to 2000% inflation, you're still dealing with severe economic problems. Um, but I think there are people, you know, that we all talk to within Venezuela who say that um, the regime does not feel uh, much need um, to negotiate now, except it is interested in sanctions relief. Um, and probably not so much the oil sanctions, more the individual sanctions, um, the criminal indictments um, of members um, of, the, of Maduro and, and his inner circle. Um, and so the question is, you know, whether any of those are, are really on the table in exchange for um, movement uh, towards a liberalization, towards a, an opening of some kind, towards free elections um, that would be internationally monitored. Um, that remains to be seen. The United States is not, um, has not put forth anything and may not, given the very harsh bilateral, uh, or I'm sorry, bipartisan condemnation of this, you know, very modest uh, initiative uh, where you had, you know, um, White House State Department officials going to Venezuela to talk to Maduro, and the blowback from that has been substantial. So, you know, to expect that they're going to try that again, um, I think is very unlikely, certainly in advance of the November midterms. Thanks, Andy. Well, we had a, a very uh, excellent presentation by Jeff Davidow yesterday. Uh, and he underscored uh, some of the uh, internal contradictions or problems in the making of U.S. foreign policy uh, and, and how difficult it is for the U.S. to uh, exert the sort of power that you might think we would have, particularly in light of the asymmetries of size and power in the Caribbean basin, and yet our inability to really maintain a strong, coherent policies because of all the domestic, uh, institutional and ideological and partisan divides that we have here. Uh, uh, to try to answer the question uh, with Cuba, of course, there's a lot that the Cubans would like from us. I mean, every just to start simply allowing remittances, something as simple as that, uh, which would net them two or three billion a year, perhaps, would be a huge inducement. Uh, but there are obviously severe political problems on both sides. On the Cuban side, the complete lack of trust. How would they know that we wouldn't turn around, uh, you know, in, in 24 hours and reverse uh, any any relaxation of san sanctions since they've been whipsawed so dramatically you know, in the last several years. Uh, so that lack of trust uh, on the Cuban side would certainly be very important. Uh, I, I'm always, I do, on the issue of security assistance, though, I'm always a little uncertain. First of all, of course, uh, it's very hard to have good in, in information by very the definition of intelligence and counterintelligence. It's obviously closely held. Uh, but I do have the feeling that maybe uh, whatever security assistance the Cubans had provided to the Venezuelans, presumably that technology transfer has occurred uh, over many years. 
Um, and also a lot of these surveillance technologies, after all, can be purchased on the market. You know, we're, we're, we see this now in the case of uh, these various reports we're getting out of the Ukraine, uh, all the hacking that's going on, public, private, criminal, governmental. I mean, there's a lot of technology out there. So I, uh, I don't know that the Cubans, the Venezuelans are necessarily dependent upon either Chinese or Cuban technology at this point. But let me, let me take us in a slightly different direction now with our, our remaining time. The recent shifts in geopolitics, uh, does this matter? Uh, on the Chinese side, uh, you know, there's this increasing sort of decoupling that's occurring at a global level. Uh, China itself has its problems with supply chains and its very strict COVID regimes. Uh, when I look at the numbers, uh, it, it seems to me, and I'm interested in, in your commentary, that uh, Chinese willingness to uh, take some economic risks in either of the three countries seems to have diminished. Uh, certainly, uh, Chinese trade with Cuba is down sharply. Uh, Chinese uh, also trade with Venezuela. They're interested in sort of getting repaid rather than increasing their risks. And um, although there's some noise in Nicaragua, uh, I have yet to see really serious, concrete financial transfers from China. So that's on the Chinese side, but seems like a reluctance to increase their exposure. Uh, and then uh, Russia, of course, I, one might imagine they have their hands full and uh, whether or not they'd be willing to uh, seriously undertake new initiatives in the faraway Caribbean basin, uh, something one would have to sort of at least question. So I'm interested in uh, the, the three panelists' reactions to uh, we've talked a lot about what's been happening in the past and in the last year or two, but how about going forward uh, in the new geopolitical environment? Do we see uh, some change in the, the opportunities for international collaboration? Uh, Yvonne, did, I saw your hand. Did you want to go first? Then, then John, then Cindy, please. Sure, no, absolutely. So I think uh, w when you look at kind of the hierarchy of, of willingness to incur these risks, that uh, you certainly, Iran is at the top, I mean, already heavily sanctioned, uh, really largely nothing to lose in actually collaborating to try to avoid sanctions. We see that now with the, the deepening of the oil swap agreements. Um, I think you find Russia in the middle, um, and, and China oftentimes uh, follows because of, of both the risks of operating in places like Venezuela and the economic case in places like, like Venezuela and Cuba, and also um, because it is exposed to its economic engagements to the West in the United States elsewhere, um, it tends to be a little bit more subtle. But in, in all of those cases, I think there's a lot of room for, for, for moving forward. I, I would say, um, you know, I clearly see the Iran deal, which also included, and this didn't get a lot of coverage, um, also providing oil to Nicaragua, et cetera. I, I see that Iran um, presence expanding. Um, in the case of Russia, as, as you pointed out well, Richard, I, I think that at least for, for the near term, um, both because of the sanctions impact and, and because of the, um, the resource diversion in, in Ukraine, uh, you know, Russia has very little to actually offer, although it certainly could do a low-cost thing to project a threat into the region as it did during the Crimea conflict in 2008, as it did during the first phase of Ukraine back in 2013, etc. Um, and um, although, again, Russia has some sensitivities. I mean, we saw this, for example, with the whole the caution of, uh, for example, Rosneft trading um, in, you know, when it was openly evading sanctions and how it had to basically reconstitute itself after we took the probably unexpected uh, decision to, um, to, to to sanction it. So, so I 
I think there is a certain amount of caution there. Um, I think in the case of China, what, what you find is that in Cuba, as you know well, Richard, um, part of the problem was until the Obama administration opening, there really wasn't a, a money case. You had some Chinese uh, providing of, of cars and electric buses and, and other things, but there just wasn't the economic case until the prospect of, of uh, Cuba opening up to the United States with with uh, with, with the Mariel and, and all of that. And then you saw the Chinese scrambling to come in. Um, and I think uh, the Chinese interest uh, waned a little bit after the Trump administration reimposed those restrictions. And I think the same thing in Venezuela. In uh, With respect to China, it had, um, you know, there were a lot of deals that went very bad, and yet it's often underappreciated the degree to which those deals were structured. So the Chinese got paid, even when um, the Venezuelans were not only defaulting on, on loans and not paying Halliburton and Schlumberger, but was were even defaulting on, on, on the Russians. Um, although in, in recent uh, times, um, even the Chinese had to accept some postponement of, of the, the little, about the $15 billion that remains in, in, in their debt payment. But I, but I actually see signs that the Chinese are coming back. I think U.S. sanctions um, relief emboldened them. Um, um, uh, and also there were some indications that already CNPC is, is having preliminary conversations of coming back to bringing up oil production in, in those oil fields. Um, but again, the Chinese and, and I empirically have always looked to our signal uh, to try to at least appear to be in compliance, even to the point where when you had those ship-to-ship transfers off of Malaysia, um, which was actually probably not authorized by, by essentially Chinese profiteers, the Chinese suddenly moved in to, to shut that, that down a little bit. But but I think the decisions that we make in the United States about engaging with the Maduro regime, we have to be very conscious of, of the fact that that not only creates latitude for the Maduro regime, but that actually creates latitude for other extra-hemispheric actors to become more bold in their engagement, which gives you a, a Effect. So let me. Uh, so you said uh, specifically that you, you see China as coming back. So let, let's maybe, maybe we could elaborate. I mean, one could imagine that from the point of view of both Russia and China, since our relations, U.S. relations are deteriorating with those two countries, uh, that they might want to uh, try to create problems for us in our near abroad. Uh, do you see any indication of the, that type of reaction? Well, I think especially since that that statement that President Xi and President uh, Putin made uh, during the Beijing Olympics, um, and, and then just how badly that the you know the, the war has gone for Russia and its egregious human rights violations, I think uh, China, in traditional fashion, just as it uh, did with Kim Jong Un, just as it did with Nicolas Maduro, has kind of backed off a little bit because it didn't want to be tainted by that. Um, to me, the Chinese are famous for um, they always want to benefit from the aggressive actions of others, but they always want to sidestep being tainted by those actions. And so what I see now is now that it's becoming okay, uh, you know, Juan Gonzalez in these these conversations um, to re-engage, I think the Chinese are edging back into that space. But again, they're, they're still worried about the money angle. They're, they're still worried about the, the political risk. I, I think they're, they're still worried about a number of other things. So I think they're they're cautiously looking for, for signals. But one of the other interesting things is as, as Russia has become economically crippled o- over Ukraine, um, a lot of that actually increases opportunities for, for the Chinese, not only as as a purchaser of goods and things like that, but some of the those allies that have relied most closely on on, on Russia, um, you know, now you know may not be getting as much support as they they like, and that opens doors for for the Chinese. Okay, thank you, uh, John. Did you want to comment as well on this? It's difficult to to follow Evan, which is which is why I wanted to go first. I can't talk about after <laughs> he has. Uh, I you know I agree one hundred percent. China's not going anywhere, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that China will will return in a sense of of propping up 
uh, dictatorships, right? Because, I, you know, I, I try to make the point that I don't think that China was trying to do that in the first place in Latin America. It had allies and was making inroads in places uh, that the United States had, uh, you know, for, for, for better or for worse, had left. Uh, you know, research has shown that, that China has made the most inroads in Latin America in places and contexts where the U.S. has withdrawn, right? But also, as Evan pointed out, China has been non-confrontational about, about that, right? It doesn't want to cause, um, it, it doesn't want to cause problems or, or, um, uh, be, uh, start uh, an armed conflict in, in the Western Hemisphere, right, which is far away from its own, uh, its own neighborhood. Uh, you know, I, I think if we look, though, again, at U.S. policy, <laughs> this speaks to what the U.S. can, can do and what the dangers are of, of different policies uh, in terms of, of withdrawing or isolating countries. You know, in, in 2005, I believe, uh, the U.S., passed a law prohibiting the sales of arms to Venezuela because of, uh, because of non-compliance with, I believe, DEA flyovers or, or anti-terrorism initiatives or something. And, and as a result, Chavez immediately pivot, pivoted to Russia. And that is when he made bulk purchases of, of Russian arms between 2005 and 2008, right? Which is uh, why you have tanks and jets and things like that right now and helicopters in Venezuela that can only be serviced by... Uh, Rush by, by Russians and can only get replacement parts from Russia and explains why there are 400 to 600 Russian soldiers on the ground at all times in Venezuela, right? And it, and it relates to that and it speaks to how policy uh, needs to be medium and long-term rather, than, uh, rather than, than short-term. And I think if, you know, the Chinese and Russians have shown anything, it's that they understand that foreign policy is, is something that is long-term in nature. Yeah. Well, we our political system has a lot of trouble uh, keeping our eye on on the ball. We also have a lot of trouble, I think, in seeing secondary consequences of our actions. I mean, after all, most sanctions are are the I think are the result of uh, domestic political pressure. Something happens in country X that uh, the the American media, etc., say this is bad. Uh, the cry goes out, we must do something. The United States has to act. We have to show these are bad guys. We have to uh, assert our moral and national interest positions. Well, we don't want to invade, uh, but we have to show something. So uh, economic sanctions is the, uh, the, the tool of first resort. Uh, and so the politics dictate uh, a quick sanction of one sort or another. And if you dribble them out, you can get many days of positive headlines listing all the bad guys that have been sanctioned. Uh, but do we then stop and think, well, how is the target country going to react? I mean, they have a certain agency as well. Uh, do they have options of different sorts? Will these sanctions cause them to tighten up or loosen up? Uh, will it cause them to not look so much abroad and look more to the U.S. or the reverse? And Cindy uh, used the phrase, what, the axis of the sanctioned. Uh, which is a phrase that's uh, increasingly uh, one hears around vis-a-vis -vis, uh, what seems to be going on now with Russia, China, uh, Iran, Turkey, as they sort of uh, express solidarity among themselves in, in, in light of the very heavy uh, U.S. And, and NATO sanctions against Russia. Uh, do we have any comment? Uh, is, uh, is there something about U.S. diplomacy in the hemisphere which is driving these countries closer together when presumably we would rather see them splinter so that our leverage uh, would be enhanced. 
Any comments about how we might avoid an access of the sanctioned uh, here in the Western Hemisphere? Well, first, Richard, I just I wanted to thoroughly agree with what you just said, and having you know lived that myself in in the policymaking space. Um, but um, and, and I'm not sure if, if it's just uh, the political pressure, but but also I think sometimes it's the desire for for action. But I would put another yes. dimension on that, and the difference between uh, today and 20 years ago, when you get into Treasury OFAC and things like that, um, is there's the illusion that we can be more precise and targeted with these sanctions. We can name particular individuals, um, and so. So it leads you into a do loop of, okay, who do we sanction? Who do we blame? Who can we go after? We can do this without at least directly hurting in a blanket way populations. It's like the difference between precision guided munitions and, and carpet bombing in, in, in the days of old. Um, and coupled with the the, the fact that, that oftentimes, um, as you rightly pointed out, uh, especially in recent years, there's a real reluctance of what, you know, do we really have military options that, um, you know, and so it, it becomes a very compelling thing. Um, but I would also note that it's not just sanctions, but it also goes to treasury. I'm sorry, it goes to uh, it goes to state and visa policy. Um, and the one that's always been a, a difficult piece that we haven't talked about is the role of the Justice Department, because um, you have, you know, basically credible indictments and naming, which you saw in Venezuela as well. Um, but the interesting thing there is that justice being very independent about the purity of its process is oftentimes reluctant to just say, okay, um, you know, the, you know, NSC uh, Latin America director can't say, okay, start investigating that person. Justice doesn't work that way. But you do have all of these tools. I, I think, yeah, the, the lack of other good options of how we change the policy of sovereign states to do things that we don't like or that threaten us. Um, it's a, uh, it, it's a dilemma, especially in the, you know, interconnected, uh, you know, post-war era. Richard, if I could just jump in, I couldn't yes, with with the last statement that that Evan made. I mean, I think the foreign policy instruments that we have are all imperfect, um, and there's a sense, I mean, somehow a sense that what the United States does can produce a change in behavior, um, and that's not always the case. Um, so some of the, I think, effort is signaling. Um, I don't think you or I would oppose uh, or would have opposed, um, and quite the contrary, the cutoff of military assistance to the Pinochet dictatorship or to the junta, um, you know, in, in Argentina. Did that cause those governments to fall? No, but it was an important, uh, an important signal, an important statement, you know, an important message. And, and I think that, um, so there is a place for sanctions without having the illusion that this is necessarily going to lead to a desired outcome. Um, but that kind of sanctioning, you know, the, the message that's sent by sanctioning, I think, is, is an important one. And the challenge is to target them. Um, and what we have against Venezuela now is, you know, financial sanctions, uh, oil sanctions, individual sanctions, and secondary sanctions, which makes it technically uh, illegal uh, for third countries such as India to be trading. Um, and I'd like to just go back to this other point about, about China. Um, the bulk of, of China's um, involvement in the region is economic and ha doesn't have anything to do with authoritarian states. It has to do with copper in Peru and Chile and soybeans and beef. 
you know, and, and iron ore from Brazil um, and, you know, export markets for, for Chinese goods. Um, Cuba and Nicaragua are complete small potatoes um, in terms of the, any kind of economic benefit or interest that, that China might have. And in the case of Venezuela, you know, after the 68 billion or so um, amount of, of loans, there's no new money. Um, there's a sense of, you know, buyer's remorse. Um, they are insisting on repayment of the loans in, in oil. Um, that will probably continue. To my knowledge, Venezuela has not defaulted as if it, you know, as it were on its export of uh, oil to China. And probably what's going to take place is a um, greater effort by the Chinese to acquire Venezuelan oil fields um, to control them directly. Up until now, um, it had to be in partnership with PDVSA. That also may be a policy that's relaxed by the Maduro regime in order to attract more investment and get more oil flowing that uh, would serve as a source of income. So, you know, because it has the largest proven oil reserves in the world, Venezuela is is on the radar screen of the Chinese. Um, these other smaller countries uh, that are profoundly authoritarian um, are not so much of, of interest. Thanks, Andy. Those were, those were important correctives. John, let me, um, we only have about five minutes left, and I want to take advantage of the presence here of uh, uh, two experts in uh, security issues. Uh, there, there's a lot of talk about how the external actors provide various forms of security assistance, particularly counter, counter, uh, counterintelligence, uh, cybersecurity, uh, the use of information and disinformation. Uh, historically, of course, one thought of the United States as being a, a major provider of these various forms of, uh, of security assistance. Now we have, uh, this is a new age, right? And uh, the use of, of uh, disinformation uh, is that it was always there, of course, uh, but now it's at a whole nother level with the use of social media, et cetera. Uh, we have hacking, the ability to take down entire systems you know, overnight. Uh, one would think that, for example, in the case of Nicaragua, uh, it wouldn't take very much to completely turn off their, uh, their utilities, for example. Uh, one could imagine it wouldn't be very difficult to, to, to make the security apparatus completely blind so that there was no information flowing vertically. Uh, so uh, my question to you guys is countermeasures, okay? So we see security assistance coming in from uh, you know, unfriendly sources. Uh, are there no countermeasures that uh, the United States, perhaps in coordination with our friends in the region, uh, that could take in these uh, in these areas, particularly of information flow and cyber. So very, very quickly. Um, so other than essentially isolation containment at, at these uh, stages and certain things to provide essentially security assistance to uh, the neighbors of these actors, such as Colombia, for example, in the case of Venezuela, that are, are threatened by these actions. I'm not sure that the time actually to to do the uh, me- other measures are, in, as in other cases, when these regimes are in their consolidation phases, when the regimes are making the choice of whether, you know, the Argentine government, whether they go with the Chinese FC1 fighter, um, the, um, you know, whether or not a certain 
countries go with, uh, you know, Huawei information architectures or the deployment of surveillance systems w- with certain capabilities, et cetera, et cetera. Because by the time those regimes are, you know, hostile anti-U.S. actors, um, you know, it's, you know, generally they're, they're going to do what, what they what they want to do. I mean, um, you know, there's some capability of, of touching companies with sanctions, but that's very limited. Um, but what I would also point out is uh, two things. Uh, one is that the nature of assistance by each of those external actors is very different. So um, you have kind of onesies, twosies with Iran, like like the Mojahir drones to, to, to um, the Venezuelans and in some you know, cooperation with with Kavim. Um, in, in the Russian case, uh, again, you have right now it's the Russians have stopped selling bulk arms, which John alluded to that the twelve billion dollars of you know basically you know reconstituting the the Venezuelan armed forces. But right now it's helping the Venezuelans solve particular problems, such as for example the, the Russians um, you know coming into Apure. And, and helping them uh, to, to try to deal with this, this challenge with the ELN and, and, and the FARC uh, there. Um, I think with, with the Chinese, it's been about more about information architectures and, and frankly, um, security vehicles that you've seen providing, you know, repression and, and other kind of citizenship control architectures, such as uh, Cynthia alluded to with uh, Carnet de, de la Patria. Um, but the one final thing, Cindy made a fantastic point, and I really want to, I, I think it's, it's really important in this discussion, which is, and, and I absolutely agree that um, China does not seek to create or support authoritarian states per se. China seeks to support and perpetuate its friends. If Justin Trudeau in, in Canada declared itself against the United States and 100% open to Chinese investment tomorrow, China would be, I think, just as enthusiastic about, about the Canadians. Um, or we can, that may say something about but the, I think the issue is it is the authoritarian regimes that are most in need and most politically disposed to being China's best friends, and that creates a certain cycle. Um, and, and at the end of the day, um, those authoritarian friends are also useful to China in strategic ways because the way in which indirectly, as long as China doesn't get blamed for it, um, they undermine U.S. influence and control in, in the region. Thank you very much. Uh, John, did you want to add to that? I'll just add very briefly, uh, I agree largely with what Evan said. The time for the United States to act uh, is in the past in, in, those, in those countries, in the consolidation phase. But that teaches us a lesson, which is, is that we can't take our eye off of other places that might be attracted to those um, security and informational infrastructures uh, that could be damaging to U.S. interests and to their own country's interests and to democracy. In the future, and so uh, that includes a number of countries that I uh, shall refrain from from naming, uh, but that are certainly uh, we could consider to be hybrid regimes uh, today. I also would like to go back very briefly to Cindy's point, a previous point, which I almost completely agree with. Although I would add that China does have interests in Cuba and and Nicaragua are not just small potatoes in one sense, and that is diplomatically. If we look at Latin American countries that you know, maintain diplomatic relations with Taiwan, uh, that number continues to drop, right? Uh, Panama, the DR, El Salvador, Nicaragua, they have, they have fallen by the wayside. And, and that certainly is part of uh, Chinese strategy as well, a long-term strategy, and a long-term strategy that it's been 60 years in, in, in the making. That's, you know, one of the... Uh... So we talk about getting in early before these regimes are consolidated. So that immediately makes everybody here think of El Salvador, okay, today. But that still doesn't really tell us what to do. Uh, so much depends upon the assessment of, well, really, who is Bukele, for example? Uh, what really is he up to? So do we want to try to do what I think the administration is trying to do right now in Honduras, 
which is take a bet that if we engage, uh, maybe we can bring Giamatta Castro into a, you know, a reasonably friendly posture. Or should we recognize that, the, that these regimes are, or leaders are incorrigible, they're a threat, and we have to do something to oust them before it's too late? So, so uh, the mere decision that there's a, a, an impending problem here, that doesn't tell you what to be, what's to be done. Right. You could you could still take that in various different directions. Uh, Cindy, did you want to comment, please? Sure. And it's not just, you know, what is to be done. I, I completely agree that El Salvador is in this sort of transition to authoritarianism, um, but not yet there. So if you take that a, a, as a case of where the United States could potentially intervene early on, um, what do you do? I mean, yeah. the, the foreign policy instruments um, are very imperfect as is the, and, and I think the assumption is wrong that the United States has the ability to change the course of these regimes, particularly when there's internal support for what the government is doing. And I think, you know, we don't have to talk about the El Salvadoran case, but Bukele is probably the most popular president in the entire region right now. Um, and um, there are very few impediments internally. And so the idea that somehow if the United States can intervene with this, that, and the other thing, it's going to change course, I, I, don't, I don't share that assumption. Okay. So that can, nothing, that, but, but, but no. you know, limited in your expectations. Well, which takes us back really to the, uh, yesterday's discussions about, uh, despite the, the apparent asymmetries of power between the United States and these smaller countries of the Caribbean basin, uh, nevertheless, our ability to manipulate the internal affairs uh, has its limits, particularly in the case of uh, a very clever leaders uh, like Bukele uh, seems to be, at least up to this point in time, right? Uh, how Biden would love to have Bukele's approval ratings, right? <laughs> okay, uh, I think that takes us actually a little bit past our assigned time here. So I think this has been a super rich conversation. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground I think we agree on many things, perhaps not on all things, but that's good. A little discussion and differences of opinion is certainly to be welcomed. Uh, so thank you all very much, uh, Yvonne, John, and Cindy. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.